Father, we uh, thank you so much that we are gathered here tonight, and uh, for it is by your Holy Spirit we learn, not by men, and we gather in your name for that purpose. May the word as it's been opened before us change us, and may our hearts, Father, be drawn to you and molded according to that word. And uh, Father, we also look as as we study tonight, I I pray, Father, that you would as well convict us if necessary and where necessary for we know we come to your word, Father, not just for the sake of knowledge, certainly not just for the sake, Father, of being puffed up in that knowledge, but ultimately, Father, so that it could do its work in our hearts. But, Father, you call us to participate in that work and to yield to the Holy Spirit. May we have that kind of teachable heart tonight. And uh, may we share the love of the Holy Spirit in us with one another in our fellowship time. And uh, as you've already provided through prayer, Father, in all the ways that you bless your body, we thank you. and. And we ask that you would be with us tonight as we uh, learn in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, as I said, we're in Luke chapter 20. Let's open up there. And in fact, if you just turn with me to the very end of 19, at the end of chapter 19, we actually had a few verses there left to tackle. And that was by intent, because as we go into the chapter tonight, you're going to see that the verses that end chapter 19 are actually an appropriate lead-in for the material that Luke proceeds to cover in chapter 20. So let's begin by looking at where we were right at the end there at the chapter 19 last week. Jesus had just made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We studied that, as you know, in detail from last week. The crowds, as they met him coming in on that foal, on that donkey, were declaring by the language they used out of Psalms 118, we know they were declaring him to be the Messiah. That for at least the disciples that were... uh, surrounding him on the, on the road leading into the city. And by the way, that's probably a number that was in the thousands. Men and women who had come to believe in him as the Messiah by and large and were willing to declare him as such upon his arrival were doing so faithfully according to what they had been taught out of their own scripture would have to happen on the day the Messiah arrived. But we also know going all the way back into chapter 13 that this was not to be the moment when he ascended to the throne. It was not to be. No matter how many people praised him, Christ had already declared back in chapter 13 that that offer for the kingdom was being withdrawn on the basis that he had been rejected by the leadership and nothing could have been done or said in the times since that moment to reverse that decision. That generation, it was the unpardonable sin, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, that nation, the degeneration of Israel in that day had committed an unpardonable sin in rejecting the Messiah face to face and in so doing they had sealed their fate. All that could happen now was judgment to come upon that city, which we understand came in A.D. 70. So he's arriving here as required, fulfilling prophecy and fulfilling Scripture, not as the conquering king, though he's being hailed that way by some. But what we taught last week, he's come as the Passover lamb. He's fulfilling the prophecies and fulfilling Scripture for how the Messiah arrives as the sacrifice for the nation, in the same way that the Passover lamb did in every year of Passover before and since. So, Christ has arrived in that way. And from this entry, Jesus now is going to spend most of his last week. This now is the beginning of his last week on earth. This is the Sunday of the week in which he dies. We learned last week that he will die uh, on a Thursday. He will be hung on the cross Thursday morning, die by 3 o'clock that day. So, this is the Sunday prior to that event on Thursday. So he is going to spend most of that last few days in Jerusalem, teaching in the temple during the daytime, retreating to Bethany at night where he sleeps. We'll learn more about why he does that today. 
And had it not been Jesus' purpose in coming to Jerusalem at this point to be put to death, if that had not been His purpose, it's conceivable that this pattern of going into the city, teaching by day, retreating to Bethany at night, it's conceivable that that pattern could have gone on almost indefinitely. In that day, we're going to study as we look at the verses today, that He was coming into a city that adored Him. For the most part, as He taught in the temple, He was surrounded by followers who adored Him. And this adoring crowd was actually the reason that Jesus was protected from the Pharisees. They formed a kind of protective cocoon or squad, if you will, that prevented the Pharisees from taking any action against him while he was there. Historians believe that the population of this city, and I don't know how many of you have been to Jerusalem or if you've just seen photographs of the old city, you hopefully would appreciate how small it is geographically. The space it occupies is very small. And yet, at this point in time, every year in Jesus' time, in His day, historians believe the population of that city swelled to somewhere between 2 and 3 million visitors, all required under the law to come to celebrate Passover. Can you imagine what that was like? Not just in the sense of the crowd and the conditions, but of all the excitement and energy that came with it. I mean, you've completely overwhelmed law enforcement, if there was any. Uh, the city is literally spilling over the wall into the surrounding hillsides. This is also going to explain why Rome and the Roman leaders were always so concerned at Passover every year for what might happen. Why security was so high on their minds. If there was ever a point in the year when the nation of Israel had the potential to rise up and cause serious problems for uh, the Roman emperor or for the Roman leadership, this would have been it. And in fact, it was around one of these times that the... um, that you had seen uh, the Maccabees rise up and later in AD 70 when there is an uprising against Israel, it's surrounded this time. So it is the point when that opportunity is greatest. So with all of that going on, all of that fervor, all of that nervousness every year, it would have been in that setting that Christ was finding himself teaching and for the most part protected from any kind of harm. Remember also, these religious leaders, they had no weapons. You know, I think you have to put yourself back in their day and in that time for a moment to understand why they could not take action against him. Because if you're like me, earlier when you may have read verses in the gospel in the past about how Jesus was hated and how they were conspiring to kill him and yet they could not do anything against him because of the crowds, if you've wondered, well, why not? Well, I want you to consider what they had at their disposal. No weapons, no way to actually physically take harm against him unless and only until they could either gain support of the Roman army who then became their instrument of force, or they were able to convince the people around him that he was in fact due judgment, that he had in fact done something wrong, and then by mob violence, they might have been able to achieve their end. If they couldn't get the mobs to agree, and they couldn't get the Roman army to agree, they were powerless to do anything against him personally. And particularly in this time when he's surrounded by so many adoring fans, so many adoring believers probably, there was very little hope for doing anything in in spite of their hatred of him. So that's the dilemma these men find themselves in, even as, they, as their hatred and their anger against him continues to grow day by day. So to this point, in the beginning of chapter 20, Rome has shown virtually no interest in taking Jesus captive or in hearing the complaints of the Pharisees. The crowds certainly aren't going to support any action, so the leaders are stuck. And the main reason Jesus, in fact, later as we'll see in a couple of chapters, the main reason he's taken captive at night from Gethsemane in the way that, he's, that it happens, is because that was the best time to avoid the crowds. Everyone's asleep. He's outside the city. He's away from the protection. That was the only time he had avail- they had available to take him captive. That's why they needed the help of a spy on the inside, like Judas, to figure out where he was and find him at that opportune moment. Otherwise, they never would have had a hope to bring him in. 
without dealing with the crowd. So at the end of chapter 19, we have that background, we have that picture, and we're going to see, as we saw at the end of last week, Jesus entering into the temple for the first time after his triumphant entry to teach. And that's where we pick up today now, chapter 19, verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, and you have made it into a robber's den. We'll want to pause there. As short as these verses are in Luke's account, this is one of the best-known scenes out of Jesus' ministry in this final week. I, I think if you were to ask just generally, even children, what, what happened when Jesus went into Jerusalem? What happened when he went into the temple? Uh, a good number of them might be able to remember this scene because it's so vivid. And in fact, if you've seen movies of the last, you know, the days of Christ at the end, this is one of the, the more uh, elaborate scenes where you see a wild-eyed uh, Christ running around turning the tables over because that's the way John describes it at an earlier point in his gospel. So there is this, this vivid uh, scene of what Christ was doing in the moment. But you have to understand why he did it and you have to understand why they were there in the first place so that he felt the need to do it. So in the, short as these verses are, let's take a couple minutes to understand what was going on in the temple during this high point each year during Passover, the week of Passover. Jesus walks into this temple grounds and here's what he saw. Here's what would have, would have seen it. I don't know if any of you have in your Bible a picture of what Herod's temple looked like, the structure that, that was at this time called Herod's temple. But it's safe to say this would have been one of the eighth wonders of the world. There's things about the, the construction of that building we still don't understand how they did. There were some stones that were 24 feet in length and weighed 100 tons. And we have no earthly idea how they were moved into position. 100 tons, 24 feet long, solid piece of stone. And multiple of those and porticos that were, were just incredibly elaborate, and these high arching walkways that led up into the Temple Mount from the surrounding city that would have put you 40 to 50 feet off the ground like the, high, the Great Wall of China, only these are arched uh, walkways that, that elevated and brought you into the city that way, from which you could have seen the entire landscape of the city of Jerusalem. Just a magnificent work. And as Jesus walks into that, this is what he's gr gr uh, greeted with. The original temple or really more properly, tabernacle, as was described under the law, was a three-sectioned structure, as you may know. You had, in this original design, you had an outer court, some, commonly called the Court of the Women, which was the, 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 sort of the outer boundaries of the tabernacle. And this structure was repeated when it became a temple under Solomon. So you have the, the larger court area called the Court of the Women, or, or the, court, uh, the outer court, from which you could enter into another inner place, a room within this court called the holy place. This is a place that only the priests could go. So the outer court of the women's court was for all Jews. Only the priests could go into the holy place. And within the holy place, there was another division which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go in and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But at the time when Herod's temple was finally constructed on, on the side of the original temple built by Zerubbabel after the nation of Israel came out of exile in Babylon, Herod had built onto Zerubbabel's temple and made it much grander and much bigger. That was the one that, by the time Jesus came to earth, that was the, the version of the temple that existed for him. There was now another section added on. So in addition to the first three, which we would call the temple proper, the, part, the temple that was described by Moses in the law, you now had this larger open courtyard area that surrounded all of that, and that would became known as the Court of the Gentiles. This was a court where anyone could enter as long as you observed the protocol required, as long as you showed the, the proper protocol. 
but you were not restricted just because you weren't a Jew. But of course, only Jews could go into the proper temple itself, the court of the women and beyond. In fact, there was a sign on that that said, you know, Gentiles would enter, should not enter upon penalty of death. So the court of the Gentiles, though, was an open bazaar, open area. That would have been the place where Jesus spent his time teaching, by and large. And that would have been the place where you would have seen most activity. So in that day, as Jesus walked into that outer courtyard, he found, as the scriptures tell us, money changers. Now, in the week of Passover, this courtyard would have resembled basically a gigantic flea market. And on a scale that would have been hard for us to imagine, because even though it's a very large structure all by itself, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of feet. If you've ever seen pictures of, the, of uh, where the Vatican is and the, the open area of St. Peter's Basilica, that's essentially on the scale, not quite that big, but something of the scale of what you would have seen in the case of the temple. Just a gigantic open-out courtyard. And you can see how many people can assemble in St. Peter's Basilica today. You can imagine a similar number could have assembled in the temple in that day. And they're all there for essentially the same reason, to prepare for their participation in the Passover. So as an event that drew millions of people from across the nation, you're looking at travelers. By and large, these are not natives of the city. They're all there as travelers. Some have a place to stay, some don't. Some are sleeping there, some are sleeping in the streets, some are sleeping outside the town. Uh, They brought their own animals in many cases. They have their kids with them. So these families coming in for the purpose of the sacrifice, having traveled great distances, many of them not bringing their own animal necessary for the sacrifice, they show up, and like any other traveler, they have needs. They need food. They may need clothing. They certainly, or, or other staples of life, they certainly probably needed an animal to sacrifice at the temple. Now, here's what was going on. If they had brought an animal with them, they would walk into this courtyard with their animal. And the first thing they would be greeted by are priests, officials of the temple, who had to inspect their animal. Because, of course, the animal could not be sacrificed if it was not spotless. And there were different types of sacrifices depending on whether the animal, the family could afford a lamb or not. If they couldn't, there were provisions for doves. Or in some cases, if they were sacrificing for sin, they might have an oxen. Or in other cases, depending on what they were there to do, they might have a variety of animals. So whatever they brought had to be spotless, had to be perfect for the sacrifices the law would require. And wouldn't you know it, Every time they brought an animal, it was found to be something less than spotless. So the priest would always find a mistake with the animal, as it turned out. And so the priest would say, the, animal, the family would say, well, we've come all this way. This is the only lamb we brought. And the priest would say, don't worry about it. There's a guy over there selling spotless lambs. Take your lamb over there, trade it in, and he'll, plus a little money on top of that, he'll give you a spotless lamb. So the family would do this. So the problem was, if you came from somewhere outside of Judea, you almost always came with the coinage of Rome a coin that had Caesar's inscription on it. You didn't have, in most cases, the Judea coin of the Jewish economy. But yet, that was the only coin that the priests could have because to hold a coin that had Caesar's face on it was considered idolatry and no good self-respecting priest or leader would ever be caught dead with Caesar's coin. So, what they would do is say, well, before you can buy this lamb, you need to go over to the money changer and he'll change your money out. Of course, there's a little fee associated with that. So you have the priests running this big bazaar. They're selling the lambs. They're changing the money. They're getting a little cut on all of it. And the real irony was that when the next family came in with their lamb and that lamb was found to be less than perfect and they were sent to the lamb seller, you know which lamb they bought? The one of the previous family. So there was this big turning around of the lambs in that court in order to just keep skimming money off the whole operation. The priests had turned this into their annual celebration for the purpose of making money. 
reminds me of another annual holiday celebrated where the purpose is long since turned from religious observance to nothing more than marketing and merchandising, but I won't get into that. So as Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles and he witnesses this scene, he's stirred to respond. And of course, his, his response here is driven not so much by the, by the fact that money is being changed in the, in the court, but by the entire culture that had developed within the priesthood around the Passover. That men who had been commissioned under the law and brought up in the teachings of God in the law for the purpose of serving others. Remember, ministry, the word minister means to serve. They were ministers to the people. They were the, interce- they were the interceders on the behalf of, of God. They were the ones whose purpose in life, as they've been set apart under the law, was to serve the needs of God's people before him in the temple. And what did they become? Men whose purpose principally was to take advantage of the people, to see what they could get away with, to, to, to take advantage of the trust that these people had in the fact that they were coming to do what God had called them to do and were taking the instruction of the priests at face value and were trusting in the priest's direction and they were being uh, taken advantage of by these men. And Christ in that is angry at what he sees going on. And his reason to attack the money changers' table, it may simply be because at the root of it all was a love of money, best represented by these tables of men changing out the money. It is to say that I don't think he's any less displeased about the the trickery that was taking place with the animals or with any of the other things that must have been going on in that place. But the money changers became a very convenient and appropriate symbol of all that was wrong there. And so... He declares that the temple has become a den of thieves. And that's a reference directly to the priests. In other words, he's calling the priests thieves. If you thought for a minute that some of these men might have been private merchants who just happened to stake out a little corner, that's not to say that didn't happen. I'm not saying that's outside the realm of what was going on. But I am to say, here to say that what he was principally concerned about was this entire economy inside the temple that had been sanctioned by and set up by the priesthood for their own benefit. For that matter, they may have allowed merchants to come in and they just took a cut of whatever the merchants were selling. Who knows how they may have structured the deals. But it was ultimately the priesthood that benefited. Matthew, in his chapter on this same event, in Matthew 21, verse 12, he adds a little detail. He gives us this one verse. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. So there's a broader perspective for you. It was not just the money changing that bothered Christ. It was all those who were selling and he turned over the tables of those selling the doves in that case. It's a good indication, a good picture of his disgust with all, the, all that was going on in that, in that setting. You can better appreciate why Jesus was so incensed when you understand the fact that he understood as his, ultimately as his role as an intercessor, these men had been the proxies for what God was ultimately to do through his own son in a permanent way. Remember that the priests, as Hebrews said, who were there giving sacrifices repeatedly, Christ now becomes our high priest who once for all has sacrificed. So in some sense, they were his predecessors. They were his proxy. They were the ones who came before him to show picture of what he would do on behalf of the nation. And in the way they had corrupted their role, they were reflecting badly on God's purpose in giving the priesthood to the people. How many people do we know in our own walk, in a Christian context now, turn against the faith in some sense? Whether that means they simply stop going to church or whether they, they become 
they, they sort of abandon their attempt to walk as they believe, or whether it means they never come to faith at all, how many of those people point to, at the root of their dissatisfaction, some man, or in, in some cases maybe a woman, within the church who was corrupt in some sense, and in so being, that hypocrisy drove them out of the church. Because they saw the, in, the fallibility of men, the sin of men, rather than looking at the infallibility and the sinlessness of Christ, and use that as their basis for saying, I want no part of this. Now, their actions in that respect would have, been, would have been wrong because it is not by the perfection of men that we are drawn into the church. But nevertheless, those who by their hypocrisy drive others away are accountable. I think it's similar to what Christ said when he says, should any cause one of these little, little ones to stumble, it would be better that they have a millstone put around their neck and thrown in the sea. I think it's in the sense that there is an accountability to those who by their actions become a stumbling block to those who truly are seeking after the truth. And I don't believe that those who seek in that way are thwarted ultimately by the hypocrisy of men, but that doesn't negate the culpability of those who play that role. So, in part, I believe his anger here is directed at that fact alone, that these men were in a high position of authority and privilege and they were taking advantage of the people through it. If you are a good student of the Gospels, and by good I just mean very attentive, you may know that in John's Gospel, this event occurs much, much earlier in Jesus' ministry. It occurs back in chapter 2 of John. Let me read you out of John what, we're find, what we find in an account there that John records. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. A prophetic statement out of the Psalms regarding the coming Messiah. Though those circumstances sound almost exactly the same as what we just read, it's merely because it was the same time of year. Because what you're actually seeing here is a second event. In fact, as I said at the very first part of last week, the Passover was one of three times a year when men were required under the law to go to Jerusalem to participate in a festival. So Jesus, as a good man, as a good Jewish man who kept the law perfectly, he went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. And in a previous year, more than likely the year before his, his crucifixion, when he went to the Passover with his disciples, he found the same scene, as we would expect, and he had the same anger and disgust, as we would expect, and he had the same reaction. So that's the reason why you see it twice, because the event happened the same way twice, because the priest did the same thing every year, and because his reaction isn't going to be capricious. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not likely to step into that moment one day and say, oh, big deal, and the next time think it's a big deal. He had the same reaction. John happens to record it at its earlier event. The other gospel writers record it in its later event, at the year when he arrives for his crucifixion. Consider this. If Jesus was willing to drive priests out of the courtyard of the Gentiles in that day with a whip for stealing from the people. I would love to have seen that happen, by the way. I think that would have just been amazing to watch. What do you suppose he thinks of men today who use their positions of authority within the church to profit at the expense of the people they serve? I think the answer is obvious. 
And we need to be ready to question the motives or the intentions of any man of God who would make a point to mix ministry with personal commerce. And just like those priests, anytime a man's role in ministering, and I guess I should say more generally, anytime a man or woman's role in ministering to God's people becomes a mechanism for enriching themselves at the expense of the people, that behavior should be condemned. Not to say we condemn the person, but certainly the behavior should be called out for what it is because it's inappropriate. We're not in ministry, any of us, in any context or in any kind of ministry to enrich ourselves. That's, that, that is fundamentally opposed to the message of what God has called in His gospel for men and women to do in ministry. It's, it's to serve others. It's to be, and I often talk about it in terms of a comparison to corporate America. If corporate America is organized like this, you know, with the guy on top and the pyramid and the, the, link, the, the ranks kind of going down the chain till you get to the bottom where everybody else is, like you and I, right? If that's corporate America, this is the church. Where, the, where the, the minister that serves a body is the servant that washes the feet of the others, as Scripture would provide. And everyone else is lifted up and supported by the work of that minister. And those who under-shepherd with that minister are just down there at the bottom as well, supporting in that structure. If you ever see a church that runs like this, and I don't just mean in the sense that they have leadership, that's natural. But if the leadership doesn't look like this, then there's probably something not quite right in that church generally. At the very least, they, they, they are probably not considering all that Scripture has to say about the way that church should be run. And it's, a, it's man's nature not to do this. It's, it's the Holy Spirit's command and the Scripture's instruction to do this. And that's what we ought to strive for. All right, go back to Luke now with me in chapter 19, verse 47. We'll read right into chapter 20. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do. For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Can you, you know, if you're having that kind of thrill of, ooh, that was good, can you imagine the crowd in the moment? Because they're not dumb. They know exactly what's going on. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, the Israel leaders, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, were desperate to kill Jesus. Just in that fact alone, you can see the evil in these men's hearts. It's not that they're desperate to discredit him. It's not that they're desperate to make him go away or to quiet him down or any of those sorts of things. The Scriptures are clear. They're desperate to kill him. They have murder in their hearts. To truly have in your heart a design to murder. You're conceiving of the plan. You're considering how to do it. You're looking for the opportunity. That's the next level in my mind. No less murder than the hate was all by itself, I realize. But if, can you imagine how much hatred had to be behind that kind of motivation now for these men? And you don't need any clearer proof that these men were of their father, the devil, the one who was the murderer from the beginning, than to hear that they had murder in their hearts after Christ. But as I said earlier, the crowd is what was protecting Christ. It's this crowd's adoring nature that's protecting him. And I'm not even sure they realized they were doing that. I'm not necessarily sure that they realized the effect they were having because I'm not sure they understood that the Pharisees wanted to kill him. 
But on the other hand, they may have been aware of just how much the Pharisees hated him, and there was a little bit of a, of a tension going on there where they were trying their best to provide some protection. But in any case, they were God's means of preserving his son until the appointed time when he would reach the cross. That much is clear. Because if they hadn't been there, he wouldn't have had time to reach the cross. They would have done something to him sooner. So the scene Luke describes here is especially dramatic. And I want you to understand again the context. This scene occurs on Wednesday. We'll know that after we kind of travel through the rest of Luke's gospel. And particularly if you compare it to Luke's, I mean, to Matthew's gospel, you become aware of the fact that this is Wednesday. Now what does that mean? Well, that means this is 24 to 36 hours before Christ's death. This is the day on which he will have the Last Supper that night. This is um, the, the last day, full day of his, of his life before the trial that will take place. He won't sleep again from this moment until he dies because he will spend all night being shuttled around the city of Jerusalem between Herod and the chief priests and others being tried for uh, a trumped-up charge until, the charge until finally he's uh, given the death sentence by Pilate. This is what's ahead of him now. So this is the scene you're in. This is, we're at that last stage of his life on earth and all that comes with it. And look what he's doing. He's calmly sitting in the temple teaching up to the last moment possible. And in that moment we hear that you see, we hear about these, these chief priests and we hear about the scribes and the elders and all of these coming in. And you're in the audience, you're in this group, this court of the Gentiles mob. Can you imagine being in the audience at this point and listening to Christ? Because what we've just been told, he's not just teaching... For the first time we hear, in the context of him teaching in the temple, we hear this interesting phrase, preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel to these people. Which has to mean specifically that he was describing himself as the author of their salvation. As the Messiah. As the one promised by God. He's being plain with them about who he is, at least to the extent that they could understand what to believe in. That's the nature of the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to these people in their very presence. And the And the Pharisees and the other leaders of the nation are hearing this, no doubt. So the leaders couldn't grasp the truth, but yet they were there to contend with it. And this entourage arrives. Now, I want you to know what this meant. Luke gives us this list of people. The chief priests, and by the way, if you know anything about the nation of Israel and their religious structure, you may have been taken aback a little by the fact that there was multiple chief priests mentioned, because in truth, you should have only ever had one. The reason there's two here traces back to the fact that there was a chief priest established before Rome showed up and then Rome came in and set up their own chief priest because they were looking for one sympathetic to them and there were Jews who did not accept the Roman version and still held to the original and to his successors. So at all times, after Rome showed up, you had two men who claimed to be the chief priest. So you have the chief priests here coming together. You have the elders and you have the Pharisees and you have scribes more than likely as well in that group. There was only one group within Jewish society that could consist of all of these people in one. There's only one group that operated with all three of these types of people, with scribes, with Pharisees, and with, or with scribes and elders, which is the same as Pharisees, and chief priests in one group. And that was the Sanhedrin. The 70-member religious ruling group over the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin, was what came to Jesus that day. Now, not necessarily all 70, But this is a delegation of the Sanhedrin sent to inspect Christ. Remember what we said would happen in the days before his crucifixion as the lamb, what was necessary before the Passover sacrifice? What did you have to do for the lamb in those days beforehand? 
You had to inspect it to make sure it was spotless. And Christ went through his inspection no less. And this is a part of that process. The chief priest, the Sanhedrin, inspecting him to see if he was sinless. Of course, in their minds, they believe he is sinful, so they're looking for the fault, yet they never find it because, in fact, he had none. So this group, the Sanhedrin, comes before him. And under pharisaical rule, and that was the rule of the day, think of it kind of as the religious law of the day, the canon of their day. Under pharisaical rule, no one could teach unless they could substantiate where they obtained their learning from. So you and I might consider it today to be something like your seminary training. Or if you didn't go to seminary, you could at least say, well, I was a student under so-and-so, or I attended this church and my pastor was so-and-so. And what you're doing for the benefit of your inspector, of the person who's asking you for your qualifications, what you're doing is you're validating your authority to be teaching. You're establishing that you have some basis to be accepted as a teacher. Under pharisaical rule, anyone who would, uh, who would set themselves up as a rabbi and teach had to be able to do that same thing. So it's on that basis that they're approaching him. They have, in other words, a, at least the appearance of a legitimate basis to question him on this issue. They're doing what the pharisaical rule required. Tell us your authority to teach. You, remember, you might remember in Acts uh, where Paul is questioned in a similar way by the crowds in Jerusalem after he's been taken prisoner by the Romans. And he asks permission to go out and address the crowd. And he goes out and addresses the crowd in Hebrew and the Romans don't know what he's saying and he causes the crowd to kind of get stirred up because of what he tells them. One verse in that discourse of Paul, look at what he says to the crowd. Remember, this is a crowd that is not real happy with what he's been preaching, so he wants to establish some authority with this crowd. Here's what he says in chapter 22 of Acts, verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicily, but brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. So as a part of his own attempt to defend himself and to show himself as having some validity in the eyes of this crowd, he cites the fact that he was brought up under Gamaliel. That's his form of authority. That would be what these Pharisees and leaders of Israel are expecting out of Christ in this moment. Who did you learn these things from? Who do you call yourself a disciple of? Under what authority are you able to teach the things you're teaching? So a man's authority in the eyes of a Jew came as a function of who imparted to that man his knowledge. So the leaders asked Jesus, who gave you this, your knowledge or your authority? Of course, the answer is that Jesus' authority came directly from the Father. Not by any man, but by God himself. He didn't need authority to be granted to him by men. Jesus, remember, is the truth. All authority to teach in truth comes from Jesus, who is the Word. So, by definition, there could be no higher form of authority, no source of truth outside himself. He is the originator of all. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He, everything originated from him. So there could not be a possibility of him going to some higher source other than the Father himself. So there is no answer except God has given me this authority. But Jesus isn't going to humor these men by giving them that answer because their evil hearts wouldn't have accepted it anyway. And as you know from studying it with me so far, Jesus has never condescended to give an answer to men whose desires in the question are not sincere. The definition of a sincere question is you really care what the answer is. You're seeking the truth. You're seeking an answer to your question and you believe that the person you're asking has a better than average chance of giving you the answer you're looking for, that, that, that they actually hold some answer for you. 
To ask a question, though, with false motives is to say, the point of my question is not to gain knowledge. It's to do something else. There's an ulterior motive. I'm there to tear you down or to show you up or to make myself look pride, to, to make myself look good. You ever seen people who ask questions just to look good? That was a question. I hope that didn't sound like one that was designed to make you look good. So the point is that, that if you asked in sincere ways, Christ always answered in a sincere, truthful way. If you asked with insincere motives, he never gave an answer. He never humored that kind of attempt to, ta- to attack him. So he answers his question with a question. Now, this practice is not as evasive as it may seem to you and I today. To answer a question with a question was actually a very common pharisaical technique for discourse. Uh, Sort of like a Socratic method in the way Socrates used to teach by asking the why question, why, 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 why. Well, in the pharisaical way of discourse, it was very common for someone to say, I will answer your question with a question. Answer me this is the way they would usually do it. There's a common joke taught among Jewish teachers that I, I pulled from uh, Dr. Fruchenbaum, it goes like this, that there was a Gentile that asked a Jewish rabbi one time, why do you always answer questions with another question? And the rabbi responded, well, why not? <laughs> cheap, cheap attempt at humor. So Jesus' answer to this question in the form of his own question is, was the baptism of John from God or from men? And now what he's really asking here by the words he used is, not when he says baptism, what he's really asking is, Was the ministry that John carried out a ministry that came from God or was it of men in the sense that it was false? That it was just John doing something he dreamed up and it was just all a big farce, a big fraud? Or was it truly ministry in the sense of God himself working through men, giving John this ministry to go baptize people and call on them to repent? So, Jesus puts the question to them about another teacher. He says, you ask me about my authority, let me ask you first. Answer this question about John and his authority. Did his authority come from God or did his authority come from men? He's daring them in the face of this crowd that's adoring Christ. He's daring them to come down firmly on one side or another as to who John was, fraud or prophet. That's the question he's just posed to them. Now remember, by this time, John had been murdered. So he's more than just a prophet, he's a martyred prophet, and nothing stirs up the love of people like a martyr. And the eyes of many of the Jewish faithful, and remember, the ones who are surrounding Christ here are by and large believers, disciples, the faithful, who, if they have come to believe in Christ as the Messiah, are going to have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to also have insight about John and to feel an affinity for his ministry and to recognize God in that work. So it would have been expected that the crowd around Christ would have been sympathetic to John, and for the right reasons, because they saw him as a prophet. So, Here's this wild, maybe that's too strong a term, enthusiastic crowd around Jesus in a time of great tension and and excitement and emotion, waiting with bated breath to hear what these leaders of their people are going to answer about a man they all believe is the prophet and who they have great admiration for and who was martyred by the great enemy of Israel, Rome. So it's a loaded question. Now, the Pharisees, we get an insight here into their thoughts, which, of course, tells us exactly how they approach the situation. They know that if they attributed John's ministry to heaven, they lose all credibility among the crowd. And here's why. Because they had already rejected John's ministry publicly. John himself, remember, had been a vociferous critic of the Pharisees. Remember, he called them vipers. And in response to that, they they had vilified him likewise. We all, and we know that they probably had a hand in helping him come to the faith that he did under the Romans. They were probably conspiring against him as they did Christ. On the other hand, they can't say 
that he was a fraud because, of course, if he had done that, the, the crowd that had already decided he was a hero and a prophet would have, at the very least, uh, they would have lost all credibility with the crowd. And at worst, the crowd might have turned against them, and that's their fear. You see them say that they might be stoned or they might be killed. So they're stuck. Now, Jesus asked this question for a greater reason than simply embarrassing these men. I want you to see the genius, of course, that only God could have in this moment. The genius of this question. Had the Pharisees said that John was a fraud, they would have discredited themselves in front of the crowd, right? But if they had said John's ministry was from heaven, then they would have answered Jesus' question as well. Because Jesus received his authority in earthly terms from John. Now, we know, spiritually speaking, he didn't receive his authority from John, but the way God the Father chose to give visible witness to Jesus' authority and to the anointing of the Holy Spirit and to the entry of Jesus into his earthly time of ministry, all of that was done through John. When John baptized him and the Holy Spirit came as a visible dove and descended upon Christ. And all the crowd knew that. That was a very public scene and it was well remembered. It's obviously written in Scripture today, so it didn't, no one forgot about it. Had he said, had they said, we believe John was a true prophet, Jesus would have said, well, John was the one through whom I received my authority. In fact, I don't think he would have had to say anything because the assumption, the connection would have already been understood. So they are doubly stuck in that they cannot acknowledge that John was from heaven, for if they did, Jesus would have been given credit. And that's why Jesus can say, because you won't answer about him, I don't have to answer to you about my authority because you're refusing to acknowledge something that the crowd has already recognized, has already seen. The result was Jesus silenced the Sanhedrin in front of all the people. You think they wanted to kill him now? Luke 20, verse 9. These will be the last verses for the night. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. Jesus moves directly into this parable in response to what had just occurred with the Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin. And I would imagine, in fact, we'll see as we look at these, at the continuing verses next week in this same chapter, it's clear enough that the Sanhedrin didn't walk away. This parable was taught in their presence and in their earshot and ultimately they were the, the target of it as they figure out themselves. Now, whenever you look at a parable, it's always important, of course, to keep the characters straight and to look back in Scripture for the parallels that are naturally going to be there and are drawn out by the parable itself. So, let's do a little of that first. There are four main characters in this parable. First, you have the one who owns the vineyard. Second, you have the caretaker of the vineyard, that's the, or the caretakers. Those are the vine growers, as Jesus calls them. Third, you have slaves, three to be precise. Finally, there's the vineyard owner's son. Now, the basic situation here is pretty simple. You have a vineyard owner who, want, who, for whatever reason, has gone away for his vineyard for a time. While he's gone, he wants the vineyard to produce fruit. And so he leaves it in the care 
of vine growers. Now, obviously a vine grower in this kind of situation is hired expressly for the purpose to attend to the field and make sure it produces fruit. I mean, the owner could have left the field with nobody in it. It's no less his field. It would no less be there when he gets back. Presumably, when he did get back, he could replant and start producing vines with fruit all over again. So, you know, the ground didn't lose its ability to produce fruit just because it's not used on the, in the meantime, obviously. So the only reason you go to the trouble to hire someone in your absence, to be there in your absence, is to carry on the work that you started, to keep the produce of the ground going. That's the principal reason why you have a vine grower under those circumstances. And I would also point out that it's not merely for the sake of giving the vine growers themselves something to eat. That's a consequence of them being there. They get to enjoy the work of that, the produce of their work. But ultimately, it's not about them. Ultimately, the, the produce of that land is not for their sake. It's for the owner's sake. They merely get to share in that harvest because of the work they're doing on his behalf. They benefit by association, in other words. The vine growers, as we hear in the parable, though, are an ungrateful and a dishonest lot. They think of nothing but themselves, and they act as if the vineyard was theirs, and they do whatever they please with it. So then the owner sends his slaves. He recognizes he's not getting the fruit of his produce, so he, he sends slaves. He sends one at a time, each of those slaves, with the, basically the same message. The owner expects to receive what, the, what he's owed from those vine growers, and he expects the slave to be his messenger for that effect. But in each case, when the slave shows up, they don't want to hear anything about what this guy has to say, what the slave has to say. They beat the slaves. They send them away empty-handed. Finally, after three of those, the son shows up. And the reason the father sends the son, we're told, is there's a hope that they would finally show the owner some respect because he had been gracious enough to send his own son. And that's something you have to understand in that society and in the Eastern culture. To send the, um, for a man to send his son in this way, in other words, as his emissary, as his representative to that group, it was communicating more than just the words that the son would bring. It was the highest degree of mercy and grace you could show in light of what they had done to his slaves already. So in other words, in light of what had happened to the slaves, the owner would have been right in every respect to send the law in, if you will, to, to have done something with armed men, to come in and arrest, or, or and for that matter, just murder, just kill the men who he had left in control of his vineyard. They had already been, they're already guilty of that kind of a crime. They're already due that kind of justice. So in light of that, to turn around and in spite of that, send your own son into that same situation is the ultimate show of mercy and grace to those who are deserving so much less. That's, that's the picture being drawn in their culture by what's going on here. But to add insult to injury, the vine owners murder the son. So they were beating the slaves, but when the son shows up, they murder the son. So to the greater grace and mercy shown, they respond to, with an even greater degree of contempt. Now, as Jesus tells this parable, I want you to imagine the scene again that's going on in that courtyard on that busy Wednesday morning or afternoon maybe. And there's the tension already from the previous moment. Everyone is, is undoubtedly in rapt attention to these words and trying to follow what Christ is teaching. But he didn't pick a particularly difficult parable. You know, there's not a lot of, of, of mystery to this one, especially not to the crowd in the moment in light of all that's going on. And so as he's teaching it, as each verse goes by, the awareness in the crowd starts to grow about what he's talking about and who he's talking to. And the details in the parable are just too specific for them to, to miss what he's really saying here. And that situation with the Sanhedrin and the confrontations with Jesus and the tensions running high and all of that mixed in, 
you know, you're, you're almost waiting for someone to just haul off and punch somebody else. It's, the tension has just got to that limit. And then as the parable ends, it becomes clear that Jesus is calling these leaders, these men, the Sanhedrin and others like them, He's calling them murderers. That's the implication of this parable. But He's done it in such a subtle way that He's not going to be accused by them in the moment of having made slanderous accusations because it's just a parable after all. But to anyone who was listening, they understood. Because this is what he described. The vineyard owner, as you might imagine, is God the Father. And though he owns the vineyard, he had to leave it for a time. And that's reflected by God separating himself from Adam and all mankind after sin entered the garden and man could no longer walk with God in his presence. So God had his vineyard, but he is not allowed to be in it with us for for a time being. Not because he's prohibited, but because by grace... He is avoiding contact with those he would have to destroy were he to come face to face and judgment would ensue. So for his grace, we are separated for a time. And so as he is gone, he has left the care of his vineyard to men. And in particular, now we're talking about the leadership that he puts in place over his people. And in light of the fact that we know that the vineyard is a classic picture out of Scripture of the nation of Israel itself. It's a consistent picture of Israel, the vineyard, the vine. Uh, the, the, the nature of that picture is so consistent, it's without a doubt that the, nation, the city in that time understood what, what was being said. We can fairly say that he's talking more specifically here about the leadership of Israel and the leadership in that day. And they, these leaders have led the nation astray. And that failure to lead them astray has led, uh, it travels all the way back to the time of the judges and, it, and it's grown to its height in the years leading up to the exile to Babylon, and now again in these days as Christ walked the earth. So it's a consistent problem, not unique to that day, but it's certainly at a climax in that moment. And along the way, what did God do in further demonstration of His grace to men? He would send them prophets whose obligation was to come and preach to the people, reminding them of their obligations to God, to honor Him. And these slaves, the prophets, were called out for the leadership, they called out to the leadership of Israel to remind them that they needed to serve God and not the idols of their own making. And that's essentially the fruit comparison here. We're talking about the fact that God, in the way He gave men responsibility to work the vineyard in His absence, expected that the produce of that work would be glory to Him. And that men, in particularly leadership, needed to be careful at all times to make sure that the work they did and the people in general did reflected glory back to God, not upon the idols of their own making and not upon themselves. That's the equivalent to consuming the produce of the field, not giving God any of it. It's not in the sense of tithing. We're talking about in the glory and in the purpose God had in in mind for having created the earth in the first place and put men in it and left men in charge of His people and having called the people to Himself. That glory was not being given to God. But of course, the prophets were rejected. And if you look at the history of the prophets in the nation of Israel, they can easily be divided into three groups each represented by one of these three prophets. On the one hand, you had the prophets to the northern kingdom. You had those like Elijah and Elisha and Jonah and Amos and Hosea. They were the prophets to the northern kingdom. And likewise, to the southern kingdom, you had uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, uh, Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Malachi. So those are the prophets of the second slave. And then finally, you have the prophets who spoke in Jesus' day prior to the crucifixion, to include John the Baptist and the apostles and disciples. Remember, at multiple points along his path, as we've studied Luke, he sent men out proclaiming the gospel, has he not? And what happens, what do you hear that happens to them? In many cases, they are persecuted for what they've been preaching. 
So it's in Jesus' own day that this continues. They represent the third slave. And then finally, Jesus himself is the son. Most obvious of all. Then you hear the crowd's response. They say, may it never be. And I believe they're saying two things, at least. Number one, they're saying, may it never be that the son would be put to death. In the very fact that Jesus tells this parable on Wednesday is itself yet another prediction by him of his own death. Of the fact that he would be put to death. Moreover, it is a clear indication from God's own perspective of who was, if not entirely culpable, at least to be held accountable for that death. It was the leaders of Israel. That though men in general are accountable to God for their acceptance or rejection of the Messiah, God is going to hold the leadership of the nation of Israel in particular culpable for having uh, allowed the death of Christ on the cross. As necessary as it was, as much a part of God's plan as it was, it was no less sin in the hearts of those men. And therefore, they were no less culpable for desiring it and conspiring to achieve it. That's the point of that parable, ultimately. And so that crowd says, may it never be that the son would die. But I also have to wonder if they aren't suggesting that may it never be that the leadership of the nation would ever fit this pattern. Whether they realized it did in that day or not, they may have been declaring simultaneously, may it never be that we would have leadership that would ever think to do such a thing, that would ever think to be so ungrateful. As we're going to study next week, the leadership here leaves absolutely convinced that Jesus was talking about them and that their only solution was to murder him. And for the rest of that day and into the night, they spend their entire energies achieving that plan and working it into existence. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 20. There are two more inspections of the spotless lamb yet to take place in chapter 20 before that (coughs) process is complete. And as the spotless lamb of God is inspected in the temple... It's ultimately going to require that he be found sinless and therefore be useful as a sacrifice. And that night, as we've studied already, or as I mentioned already, when he sits down with the disciples after sundown at the beginning of the Passover day and shares what we now call the Last Supper, he has really the Passover meal with them. And he says, my body is broken. You are eating of me because he was the lamb for them in that moment as was required. We'll study that more when we get there. Let's go to prayer as we end tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, can our hearts ever completely comprehend and and take in and appreciate what it must have been like as the Father in Heaven to sit on Your throne and to watch as Your own Son moves so close to death on the cross and to, to know it was coming and to permit it to be so. Could any of us, Father, have done something in that way with our own child? I scarcely believe it could be true, Father, but... You did it to a far greater sacrifice than we could ever offer. And You did it, Father, for You loved us before we knew You. And Your plan, Father, was written before the foundations of the earth. And Father, we are called into that opportunity by Your Holy Spirit and how grateful we are for it and how humbled we are, Father, to know that that was Your intent. And here as we even read it today in the pages of the Word You've set before us, it is still, Father, too great to imagine and appreciate. May it be the case, Father, that in the the days and weeks to come as it sinks in even further that it might become that seed as it grows in our hearts to motivate us to go out, Father, and do greater works in Your name to to seek out those who are without the, the knowledge of the Gospel and without the security that it brings and to 
to testify boldly about all that we know in the Scriptures and to be that light and salt. Not worried, Father, about the persecution and shame that may come knowing that when they persecuted us, they persecuted Your Son first. May it never be, Father, that we would worry about how others might perceive us as Christ obviously in His life gave no thought to how He was perceived by evil and unbelieving men. In all those things, we have such great examples, Father, of how we're called and we pray, Lord, we would be conscious of that calling and worthy of it and grateful for it. And uh, Father, in the week to come, may we uh, be guarded and guided and protected and kept by the power of your Holy Spirit so that if it be your will, we would return next week to study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.